Remain standing and turn to Zechariah chapter 10. Um, while you're finding your place there, it's also printed in your bulletin. Um, you know, we were so blessed to have all those cute, adorable faces and voices and enjoying the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe all week long. And then, like, something happened right at the end on Friday, right after we were done, we went outside. And what was this wonderful embrace and celebration of the gospel being pictured in the line of the witch in the wardrobe sort of turned into this dark chapter right out of the Lord of the Flies. As all those, those 130 cute smiling faces all took their baking, baking soda snowballs and pelted me and Kyle ruthlessly and relentlessly and we just ran screaming like girls. Um, I mean, not like girls, like scared men and women can be when they're being assaulted mercilessly. Uh, hey, uh, stick around. We've got a slideshow, right? Is there another slideshow, Joel, after the service? Okay, it's out in the lobby. Uh, you can see some more pictures from BBS. All right, so in chapter 10 of Zechariah, God is continuing to remind his uh, previously exiled people who are now returning refugees, basically, to a ruined city and a ruined temple, and he's reminding them of his promises, some really, really remarkable promises. So uh, I'm going to read beginning in verse 6 through the end of chapter 10. This is the word of the Lord. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. And they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. And with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon until there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low. The scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord. And they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for its promises to us. We thank you for your compassion to your people. We thank you for Jesus. We pray that we would see him clearly. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. There are, are three really beautiful expressions here that I want to highlight and focus on in verse 7. Uh, there's this description of the joy of God's people that their hearts shall be glad as with wine, right? It's a great picture. And then in verse 9, we hear a, a picture of what it looks like to be restored uh, to God and be 
brought back into relationship with him, how in far countries they shall remember me, and they will come home, right? And then in verse 12, uh, we're given this image of what it looks like to be on the receiving end of a restored relationship with God, how we will walk in his name. Uh, The Bible has some remarkable language in it, um, and and if you're new to the Bible, uh, I think you're going to you know, you're in for a treat this morning. There's some really beautiful things that, that are startling to us and, and at the same time uh, helpful and surprising in a good way. Uh, but you're, no matter whether you've been in church for a long time or you're new to this, uh, I'm sure that I think everybody here knows that the Bible does have some startling things to say, even controversial things. Um, right out of the chute in Genesis, you know, you read about how there's only one God, one creator God. He's the king, um, and there really are no other gods. Uh, all the other gods are little lowercase g's, uh, and they're non-entities. They're false, and they're idols. Uh, and so, you know, on the one hand, that's startling. It's also controversial uh, in comparative religious circles. Uh, the Bible also says that humanity was created to be good. We're going to talk um, more about that in a second. Like, how were we originally created? And there's some startling things to recognize there, too. But then the Bible depicts our, our fallen nature, how we've become corrupt. And we actually need a Savior from outside of us. We can't save ourselves, and that's controversial. Another startling thing that the Bible asserts is that Jesus is that Savior. He's the only Savior. There are no other Saviors. He's it. He's the way and the truth and the life. And all other Saviors are imposters. And that's controversial. The Bible, on the one hand, comforts us by telling us that that heaven is a real place, but it also disrupts us. Uh, It confronts us with the reality of hell. Both are real. Both are eternal, and all of humanity is going to spend eternity in one place or the other. Each individual person who's walked this globe, that is their destiny, one or the other. That raises eyebrows. And, I mean, we could go on and talk about other controversial things that the Bible asserts. Uh, The Bible's got some things to say about the sanctity of human life. It's got some things to say about justice for the poor and the oppressed. It's got some things to say about the, the goodness of gender and the, the purity of, of sexuality. And you can go on and on and get in lots of trouble with people on the right or the left or, you know, whatever. Uh, the Bible is an equal opportunity offender uh, and, and will rub everybody's fur the wrong way uh, if you just listen long enough. But I want to talk about one other sort of startling controversial, arresting thing that the Bible asserts with clear authority. And that is this. God made us to be happy. God wants you and me and every person walking this planet to find joy. Everybody. He offers us a joy that's unspeakable, it's full of glory, as the New Testament asserts, and it is available to every person who wants it. Listen to how Spurgeon describes us. 
uh, man, human beings, were not originally made to mourn. We were made to rejoice. And when you pause and you think about that, you go, yeah, that's right. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. We are not the way we're supposed to be. Sin and sadness are supposed to be, you know, those are inventions of the fall, not what God created in, in, in all of its goodness when, uh, when creation was first made. And so when you consider that, we were made to be happy. Why? Because we were made in God's image. And well, what does that tell us? It means that God is happy. And God rejoices. God is a joyful God. He made human beings in his image to rejoice, not to mourn. That's a byproduct. And Spurgeon continues, God made human beings as he made his other creatures to be happy. They are in their right element when they are happy. You are your truest self when you are happy. That's slightly controversial. That's a bit the tension getting, I think, um, and, and one of these wonderful things that the Bible surprises us with. We sometimes get the impression, don't we, that serious Christians aren't necessarily supposed to be happy. Serious Christians are supposed to be serious. Serious Christians are serious about life. We're serious about religion. Uh, we're serious about the brokenness of this world, right? And if you're not serious, there's something wrong with you. If you're not serious, you're superficial. That's what's wrong with you. And, uh, and you're not taking the world seriously, you're not taking God seriously, and if you want to be a serious Christian, you have to be a sad Christian. That's, that's a lie. That's like saying if God is serious about being God, he should be sad. And that's a lie. We'll talk more about grief, uh, and, and I get it, right? Put a pin in that. We're going we're gonna to talk about that. But Scripture confidently asserts that God wants us to be happy. He wants us to be ridiculously happy, glorious, inexpressible, full of glory. He wants us to be drunk with happiness. Does that get your attention? Did Zechariah 10 get your attention? Did verse 7 get your attention? Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine, right? And their children shall see it and be glad. And their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. What's, what's, what's all this joy about? What kind, of, what kind of happiness is happening here? I want that. <laughs> this, this is not the embrace of, of too much wine. That's not that kind of exuberance. This joy is all that. I mean, you know, wine is the, is the shadow of the true intoxication, the, the, the true intoxication of rejoicing in your Lord rather than in your Merlot necessarily. There's a difference. This is uh, some qualifiers here. This is not the same product that prosperity preachers are pushing, all right? This is different. If God wanted you to be happy by giving you more stuff, then yeah, he'd give you more stuff. He'd give you nicer stuff. He'd give you newer stuff and, you know, lots and lots more stuff. But in fact, the Bible is warning us against the acquisition of stuff saying that, no, your treasure's not on earth, your treasure's in heaven. It's not in a bottle, it's in a Savior. I mean, you know, the, the gladness of wine is a gift, you just shouldn't abuse it. That's not where our ultimate joy is. Uh, the goodness of things, they can be blessings and gifts to us, but we don't find, they don't make them into idols. We worship our Creator rather than the creation. So why is Israel so happy? Well, they're back in a restored relationship with God. They're back home. They've come home from exile. And, uh, you know, they had rejected God, but God in His compassion restored them. 
And you look at verse 6, back up one verse after, you know, seeing that they're going to be as glad as with wine. Back up one verse and you see all the causes of, of, uh, of God's people's joy because God promises that he will strengthen the house of Judah. He's going to save them. He's going to bring them back because he has compassion on them, right? And he's, it's going to be as if he had not rejected them. And he's going to answer their prayers. And so this happiness, like all true, lasting, rich, fulfilling happiness comes ultimately from a restored relationship with God. That's where true happiness comes from. Um, In verses 8 and following, we we hear more about what God's going to do to bless His people, to call them into true, lasting joy. How in far countries... They're going to remember God. They're going to remember the one that they had rejected. Uh, you know, he's going to whistle for them. That's the shepherd's call. The, shepherd hear the, uh, the sheep hear the shepherd's voice, and they know instantly, oh, all right, we're, we need to go. Uh, and they're going to hear his call. They're going to be gathered in because uh, God has redeemed them. He's ransomed them, literally. And they're going to be as many as they were before. And even though they were scattered, they're going to remember me from their far-off countries, right, from among the nations, and they're going to they're gonna live. They're going to return. They're going to be brought home uh, from all the places where they were scattered, Egypt and Assyria um, and you know, other places, Babylon and Persia and so on. All right? So this is a beautiful promise of restoration. So God's people had been beaten down by enemy after enemy, slapped down, Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, Persia. And why were they being beaten down? Well, because... They, as a nation, as a people group, determined we don't want to live in dependence on God. Instead, they had turned their backs on God. They decided we want to be independent of God or we want to worship the gods of the people around us. And so God said, okay, I'm give you what you want. And God removes his hand of protection over them and that just left this void, this, this vacuum, and then God's enemies came in and they took advantage of God's people. Now, God had a plan for that because he knew in their exile they would remember. We, they remembered their God and they called out to God and God heard them and had compassion to restore them. This is a picture of our own exile, right? All of us, spiritually speaking, have been in faraway places. A.W. Tozer says, whatever else the fall may have been, it most certainly was a sharp change in man's relationship with his creator. Man destroyed the proper creator-creature relation in which, unknown to him, his true happiness lay. And so by asserting our independence, turning our back on God, we are exiled. That's the picture of being kicked out of Eden. That's the picture of being exiled into faraway places. And the gospel is a picture of being brought back home, back into a joyful relationship with our creator and our redeemer. So nothing, as as Zechariah is depicting here, nothing can keep us from being restored to God and finding our happiness in Him. He has removed the obstacles. Nothing can keep us away. Nothing except, there is one, one little clause here, nothing can keep us from being restored to God except our own unwillingness. You know, and this is the point where I pause and I go, okay, we've got to acknowledge a mystery here. There's the sovereignty of God and His grace to call us and to bring us home. And then there's the Bible asserting very clearly that you and I are responsible for our decisions. 
that God is a sovereign king, but he's also a just judge and holds us accountable and responsible for our choices. There's a mystery there. But the gospel clearly calls us to respond to God's call. And if we're unwilling to respond to that call, we will stay away. If you want to know God's grace, if you want to leave your sin, you want to know that you're forgiven, then you can certainly have those things and so much more. You can have the joy of a restored relationship with God. But if you don't want them, and if you want to keep looking for joy and satisfaction from the world rather than from Jesus, don't get the impression that you can have both. The Bible gives us a choice. Uh, it's why the, in the prophets, you know, um, we're in the prophets, right, in Zechariah, a lot of the times you'll come across an image of God's people uh, rejecting him, and that rejection is compared to uh, adultery, spiritual, you know, infidelity. Uh, and so, you know, we have this husband in heaven, right? But instead, we in our sin and our unsatisfaction, uh, we'll go looking for joy and satisfaction and love in, in you know, other places. We'll go looking for that from the world instead of from heaven. And God's a jealous God, and He will forgive us if we come back to Him, but He's not going to allow us to keep hooking up spiritually on the weekends, right? And cheating and letting our hearts wander. He says, choose. Relationship with me or choose the world. It's not, it's not a new image, uh, and Jesus gives us lots of wonderful pictures of what that choice is about. Really famous one, I think most of you have heard about, but if you haven't, this is really great to latch on to. Um, in Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of two brothers, and they've got a father, and we're going to focus on the younger brother right now. Uh, Jesus says there's a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And the father divided his property between his sons. And not many days later, you know, wasting no time, read between the lines, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into those fields to feed pigs. And if you're Jesus' Jewish audience, you know how abhorrent that notion would have been. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Don't forget that last line. So Jesus is painting a picture for us of, of our own spiritual condition and our own rebellion, right? So the, the analogy here is that we were created to be a part of God's family, enjoying, right, joy, enjoying his fatherly love, his fatherly gifts. That's what he created us for. But we're a lot like the spoiled younger brother in our own sin, and our own selfishness. And we reject our Father, we look for joy apart from Him, we go off into the world, we want to do our thing, we want to be independent, right? We want to, you know, sort of be grown up a little bit. We don't want to be children anymore. But we think we know what will make us happy, and then when we realize it's not and it all runs out, it's finite, the world, you know, betrays us and it leaves us miserable in the end, just like this younger brother in the pig's mud and 
pig pen. Did you know what the pig mud is, by the way? That's not just water. Why is the mud mud? If there's a severe drought, there's not much food, there's not much rain, where's the liquid coming from? And he looked around and he was hungry and he wanted to eat what the pigs were eating. No one gave him anything. That's us in our spiritual condition. We think we know what's going to make us happy. We go running after it and we realize in the end, wait, that just, it, it comes to an end and it, and it really does end up leaving us miserable. I'm not saying it's not fun in the moment. This kid was having a blast when the money was flowing, the wine was flowing, the prostitutes were flowing. He was having a great time. It's kind of what happens afterward that leaves you miserable. Jesus goes on and he, he, he uh, gives us a happy ending here. When the younger brother came to himself, his spiritual sanity gets restored. When he's in this far-off country, and he comes to himself, and he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I, I, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please, just treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kept kissing him. And now Jesus shows us what grace looks like. He shows us what our sin looks like, and now he shows us what grace looks like. He shows us the, the heart of our Father in heaven. So um, the good thing that the Son does is he realizes, okay, I'm miserable in this uh, covered in, in pig mud, uh, and rather than go to some other you know, pigsty, jumping the fence to some other you know, pile of mud, I'm going to go back to my Father. Things are going to be better back there. So that's the good thing that he did. He came to his senses. And then we see the father. He's ready. And he's eager to restore the son. Right? What do you know about the father? The father is on the porch and he's looking out for the son. Because when, uh, when he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He saw this, this, this silhouette on the horizon. He said, that walk. There's something about that walk that looks familiar. And then as that silhouette just slowly got a little bit larger and larger, he realized, yes, that's my son. And he gets up off the porch and runs to his son. And his reaction is compassion. Jesus told us that his father saw him and felt compassion rather than scorn, rather than shame, rather than condemnation. His father runs to him, embraces him, hugs him, doesn't stop kissing him. And I want to ask you a question. In that moment when the fathers run up to him, the father's a hot, sweaty mess. The son is a hot, sweaty mess, hot, muddy, sweaty mess. In that moment when the father just is smothering him with kisses, what is the son feeling? What's the son feeling? Apart from, I mean, what would makes sense would be a whole lot of disorientation, like, I don't know what's happening here. But the son is not feeling condemned. The son is not feeling 
judged. The son is not feeling rejected. What's the son feeling? Forgiven. Loved. Maybe even a little bit happy. Maybe joy. For the first time in a long time. And you see this contrast between how the world treats the son when he's in this pigsty, he's in need, and what did, what did Jesus tell us? No one gave him anything. Versus the father. What did the father give him? The father gave him a sprint. <laughs> he gave him hugs. He gave him kisses. If you read all the rest of the story, there's a ring, there's a robe, there's a feast, there's a homecoming. And the father gave him everything. Jesus tells this parable to show us the wealth and the joy of God's love. God gives us everything we need to have joy in this life and in the next because he gives us a restored relationship with him. I want you to see that contrast between how the world takes from us. Sin takes from us. God gives to us. He gives us everything, and to prove it, John 3.16, I know it's a verse familiar to most of us. God so loved the world that he even gave his only son. And whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. The younger brother thought he knew the rules. He thought he knew how the world worked. He thought he knew how you know, relationships worked. If you blow your fortune and you come home in shame, maybe, just maybe, you can be hired to feed the pigs. That's how we thought the world worked. You know, if you fail, you're going to get ridiculed. If you bring shame on your family, you're going to get rejected. If you sin, you're going to get judged. That's, that's what he thought. That's how he thought the world worked. He didn't know about a deeper love. He didn't know about what C.S. Lewis called a deeper magic to relationships, especially our relationship with God. We've been spending this whole past week in VBS talking about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, about this land called Narnia, and it was made to be good. It was made by Aslan, but this white witch has come in and made it always winter and never Christmas, right? Um, she's the cold and ruthless enemy whose pleasure is Narnia's harm. And these four kids show up in Narnia out of our world. One of them, though, is a betrayer. And Edmund betrays his brother and his sisters. He betrays Narnia. He gets in league with the White Witch. He, he eats her Turkish delight. He drinks her Kool-Aid. And he is a traitor. And the law, the deep magic, says that if you break the law, if you are a traitor, your blood is forfeit to the White Witch. You become her property, and she has the right to kill you. And Edmund's life is in the balance, but Aslan steps up. Aslan makes an arrangement with the white witch, an arrangement that satisfies the deep magic. There's going to be blood. There was, a tra- uh, there was treason and there will be blood. And so Aslan provides the blood through his own sacrifice on the stone table. And Susan and Lucy are there and they're just out of their minds with grief. How did it end this way? How can Aslan be dead? And then the lightning... And the stone table cracks, and Aslan appears, and Susan and Lucy are just, what in the world has happened? And they need an explanation. And Aslan explains to them, he says that it means that though the witch knew the deep magic, 
there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, in a traitor's place, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. C.S. Lewis wrote these stories to give kids some boxes, some categories to, to put the gospel into so that they would recognize an echo of the gospel when they hear the real thing, when they hear about the true Son of Man, the true Son of God who would come and give His life on a cross and then death would start working backwards because He was sinless. He was perfect. and He was good. And He gave Himself for us. So all who put their faith in Jesus can have their sins removed as far as the east is from the west and God would regard us as sinless. We would be justified just as if we'd never, ever sinned. And then Jesus rose from the dead. Death started working backwards because Jesus is making a brand new creation out of this world and out of us. And all we put our faith in him can be new. Just as if you've never sinned. You can be approved. You can be accepted. You could be, another place where Lewis says, a real ingredient in the divine happiness. In short, you can come home. If you've been in a faraway country spiritually, right? If you've been deep in the mud, deep in the mud of sin, you can come home. Maybe you're in the mud right now. You can come home. Don't get this impression that God is going to greet you with scorn, with shame, with condemnation. God is full of compassion, and He will greet you as Jesus has promised us with hugs and kisses and a robe and a ring and a feast. Welcome home. Come home. One of the, one of the kids um, came in, I guess it was Wednesday or Thursday, and brought his whole piggy bank. He bought his whole piggy bank, and mom or dad was standing there. I heard this story secondhand, so I, I didn't see it. But one of the parents was there. He brought his whole piggy bank for the offering for the kids uh, to go to school in Bangladesh. And, uh, and, and whoever it was who was receiving the offerings from the kids sort of looked, up, looked at the piggy bank, looked up at mom and dad, looked at the kid, and mom and dad said, yep. And the little, little boy said, I'm tired of being selfish. And he came home. He came home. He said, I'm, you know, selfishness and the way the world works is just not, not working for me anymore. That's not where my happiness lies anymore. And when we find that restored relationship with God, when we come home and we're reminded of a deeper magic that doesn't work the way the world works, it works through forgiveness, it works through grace, it works through compassion, it, it works through sacrifice, it works through blood, but the blood's been shed, the sacrifice has been paid, and you are forgiven through Jesus. And that should bring you some joy. It should bring me some joy. And we shall walk in his name. We shall walk in step with the truth of this gospel. So if you look at verse 11, you can see all the obstacles God's removed 
uh, in order to bless his people. They're going to pass through the sea of troubles. They're, they're going to you know, strike down the waves of the sea. You can remember Jesus walking on water, right? And all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up, and the pride of Assyria laid low, the scepter of Egypt shall depart, and I will make them strong in the Lord, and they will walk in his name. So these are the nations, right? Just sort of representative, Egypt, Assyria, there's also Babylon and Persia. Uh, These are the nations that were humbled because they were opposing God and his people. That any one of those nations and any person, for that matter, who, you know, turns from their sin and decides, no, we want to start walking in his name, that person will be forgiven, that person will be reconciled. So what does it mean to walk in his name? It means for us who say, yeah, I want Jesus. I want to, I want to leave the world. I want, to, I want my happiness to be in heaven. It means we're going to live consistently with the kingdom of God. That's what it means to walk in his name. I want my life and I want the way that I live my life, I want the way that I walk to demonstrate the truth of the gospel. Um, you know, this is what um, the prophets were talking about. Micah says all the peoples each walk in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And we don't get this perfect, right? I mean, none of us is going is to walk on water the way Jesus did. We're going to stumble and we're going to sink sometimes like Peter did. And that's not the only time that Peter stumbled in his walk. Paul had to confront Peter one time. He'd forgotten about grace, and he started putting some rules in place, thinking that I can make God happy with me if I start, you know, being a good boy and obeying all the ceremonial rules and rituals and stuff. And Paul had to confront Peter and said, look, your conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. You're not walking in, a, in, the, the, in his name. You're not walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. So what does it look like for us to walk in, a, in, in the name of the Lord? It means, you know, according to Ephesians 5, to walk in love. It means, according to Galatians, to walk in the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians, it means to walk by faith. And here in Zechariah, I think it means to walk in joy. A little application for us. And this is where, okay, now we see some of the controversial part of what we're talking about, that, the, that God wants you to be happy. We're supposed to be walking in joy. Uh, another prophet, Nehemiah, says, look, have a feast. Go celebrate uh, because this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that's ridiculously good news that God gives us the gospel to restore our happiness by restoring our relationship with him. The joy of the Lord really is our strength, but this is a challenge too. It's a challenge to us who to, to find our joy in Jesus rather than in the world because there, then an uncomfortable question arises when we're not rejoicing in Jesus. The question Paul asked the Galatians, what happened to your blessedness? What's happened to all your joy? How would you describe an unhappy Christian? If this is true, if everything we've laid out is true, that God wants you to be intoxicated with joy, the joy of having a restored relationship with him, what do we do when we're not joyful? What does that mean? And I want to make sure that we have categories for times in our lives where we're in a season of sadness for some reason. There's a, there's a great grief. There's a reason to grieve. There's a reason why the Newdorf should be sad right now. You know, there's a funeral that's taking place. And I I certainly want to make sure that we have a, a way to recognize the validity of depression as a disease. I have firsthand experience with that. I get it. But that's not to let us off the hook. 
Because you can't just consign everything to just circumstances and what other people have done to us and, and you know, my, my, um, uh, everything that's a symptom of living south of heaven, there's still joy offered to us. So let's be candid. Isn't some, some sounds like the minority report, Maybe more, maybe most, I don't know. You've got to make that call between you and the Holy Spirit. But isn't some of our unhappiness really about our failure to absorb the joy offered to us in the gospel? Isn't some of our unhappiness about looking for happiness in the world instead of looking for it in heaven? C.S. Lewis put it like this in The Weight of Glory. He said, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. We're fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And that's what's robbing our joy. Not all of it, but some of it. But we were made for joy with a joyful God, but we chose to walk away, and we have had that joy restored to us through a restored relationship with God. That's why our shorter catechism says, what's the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, and eternity starts today. And the Heidelberg Catechism says, Hey, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort, in the joy of the gospel? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. I was in the mud. I was with the pigs. And how I am set free from all my sin and misery through Jesus who died for me. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance and keep walking in a way that's worthy of the gospel. So you and I have a choice. When we find ourselves in the dumps, in the mud, grumpy, complaining, sad, and upset, you know, we can stay there. And like me, you know, think that my unhappiness is because of what other people have done, because of my circumstances, and God's not treating me fair, and so on and so on. Or we can hear the gospel calling us to find our joy in Jesus, the joy that lifts us out of our sadness. And we can stay in the mud with the pigs, or we can get up and go. Brendan Manning puts it this way. He says, I'm reminded of the night... Little John Dyer, three years old, knocked on the door flanked by his parents. And I looked down and I said, hi, John, I'm delighted to see you. He looked neither to the right nor the left. His face was set like flint. He narrowed his eyes with the apocalyptic glint of an aimed gun. Where's the cookies, he demanded. Where's the cookies? The gospel is the good news. That God created you to be joyful. That he created us to be like him. That's the good news that he wants us to be joyful, even more joyful than those filled with wine. It's the good news that he made a way for us to repent of trying to find our joy in this world. It's the good news that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorned its shame, and went to that cross to forgive us and to restore our relationship with Him. And it's the good news that we can find our joy again. 
in Him and not in this world. So, how do we walk in this truth? We walk in this truth by not looking to the right or to the left. We set our faces like flint and we steal our gaze with the apocalyptic glint of a loaded gun aimed at joy. And we go after the cookies. <laughs> we go after joy in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we, we acknowledge uh, that we're a bundle of contradictions. Uh, we say we love you, but we've got a love affair with this world. And we pray you just purify our hearts. Uh, keep our, our list short of sins we're repenting of. Help us to walk with integrity before you. Help us to, to really determine that our joy is going to come from heaven rather than from this world. We thank you that you promise us joy as we cling to Jesus, that you can give us a joy that would even transcend uh, really, really miserable, hard, difficult things in our lives. We know that you, um, you validate those. You, we know that there are times and seasons for grief and for tears, and that indeed, Jesus, you yourself were a man of sorrows. But you were a man that was infinitely joyful. We pray that we would walk in a way that honors you and shows the world something different about your disciples. Lord, with that in mind, we do pray for the New York Springfield Journal.